As always, church, it's good to be with you guys. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but singing, not only do you get to express your heart, but as you sing, you get reminded of how true the Word of God is. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Ephesians 5. And with my big body in front of the screen, you're probably going to need it. So, <laughs> Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Um, and we'll be there just in a second, but you'll probably, we'll be there the majority of the time of a couple of the scriptures, but Ephesians 5 is where we're going to be. And we're continuing on in the book of Ephesians where God is continuing to give his church, his people, you, me, instruction on how we are to live. That Ephesians 4 through 6 is testifying to us that although God saves you, although God loves you, based on Jesus, not based on you, not based on your work, that he still demands that we respond and act a certain way. That after he saves you, he begins to change you. He begins, to, he begins to change you. He begins to change your thinking, your attitudes, your affections, your actions to match his. That although grace is free for us, it isn't stagnant. It isn't stagnant and it even produces and demands that we change and we respond. So this week and next week, we're going to cover the topic of marriage. Cover the topic of marriage. And of the entire New Testament, in the text today in Ephesians 5, is the most insightful, with the most instruction on the topic of marriage. In all the New Testament, there's not another text like this one. Another text like this one. Now, before I go on, I need to make something really clear for you guys. That every single one of you, every one of you, needs this topic today. That every single one of us need to know that the topic of marriage is important for you. Whether you're single Whether you're married, whether you're widowed, whether you're divorced, wherever you are on that spectrum, the topic of marriage is incredibly important for you. Incredibly important for you. See, too often, too often we only pay attention to the scriptures that directly speak to us. Too often we think, okay, unless my name's in it and my circumstance and my situation of life's in it, it's probably not for me. But you have to remember this book of Ephesians is addressed to the entire church. It starts off with to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Austin, Texas. The entire letter is for the entire church, even the parts that don't directly apply to you. Because when our Father speaks, when God our Father speaks in his word, all of his children need to listen, not say, that's not for me, that's for his other kids. No, he wants all of his people to hear the exact same thing. Now, I'm sure I don't need to convince uh, married couples, this is important for you. I'm sure if you're married, you've already nudged your spouse, say, listen up, you need to hear this. But there are others of you who probably need a little bit of convincing. So let me address two, two groups of people in the room. Uh, for those of you who've gone through a divorce, those of you who've gone through a divorce, I want you to know that the scriptures have good news for you, hope for you, that God is able to make all things new, that he's able to restore the years of strife and pain There's a promise in Joel 2 where God says, I'm able to restore the years the locusts have eaten. That God's able to restore even the years that you've lost. So I want you to know God and this church loves you. And I hope that this series, if you've gone through a divorce, the next two weeks encourages you, gives you instruction and strength to obey God in all the ways God is calling you to obey him. Now secondly, for singles. For singles, if you're checking out, you're like, well, I'm not married, it doesn't really apply to me. Well, the truth is most of you, sociologically speaking, will get married at one point in time. So one day it will directly apply to you. But more than that, there are others of you in this room who God's going to call to singleness. This gift of singleness where God gives people to get the singleness in the church for the purpose, not just being single, 
but for the purpose of having more time to serve the church, more time to advance the gospel in this city and around the world. And even if God calls you your entire life to singleness, you still need to have a high view and a strong view of what God says about marriage. It's important for you. Look at the writer of this this epistle. Paul was single his entire life, and yet he's the one giving us instruction on marriage. The Apostle Paul is right into the church in Ephesus, and there are a thousand things he could address, and yet, in his mind, the Spirit has led him to say, I need y'all to know this, everybody. Even me, a single man, needs to know how valuable, how important marriage is, and here's why. Here is why every single one of you, me included, we have to have a high view of marriage and hold to what, the God, what God's Word says about it so tightly. Here's why. Because God ties your understanding of the gospel to your understanding of marriage. God ties your understanding, your value of marriage to how you understand and how you value the gospel. That the most fundamental reality of our faith is expressed through marriage. See, marriage is not primarily a cultural issue. It's not primarily a political issue. Marriage is primarily a theological issue. It's primarily a theological issue. God created marriage to display the greatest, the greatest realities of our relationship with God. The greatest realities of our relationship with Jesus and his church and his people forever is the only relationship designed to do that. It is the only relationship in all of creation that displays the relationship of Jesus and his bride, the church, the only one. So it's important for every single one of us, if you have trusted Jesus, it's important for every single one of us to value it properly. So let's read the text together. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. I'll stand over here so you can see it. Um, here's, what, here's what the word of God says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." So Paul spends the majority of his time on this seminal text in the New Testament about marriage, unpacking how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. Now next week, we're going to spend our entire time about those roles. Next week, we're going to spend our entire time about those roles. But this week, this Sunday, we're focusing on two verses towards the end of that section about the foundation of marriage. Two verses at the end of that section about the foundation of marriage on which the roles are built upon. In verse 31 and 32, about the covenant, the covenant of marriage. That's what everything rests upon in marriage is on that foundation of covenant. 
That the marriage covenant is designed to display and mimic the eternal covenant of Christ and his church. Look at verse 31 and 32 again. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So that verse 31, that therefore a man shall leave, Paul is quoting Genesis 2.24. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. He's taking us back to the creation of marriage, and he's showing us something about it. See, in all of creation, God saw that everything he made from nothing was good, and yet there was one thing that was not good. What was it? Adam was alone. Adam was alone. So he creates Eve, and he brings her to him as his wife. And he gives them this relationship between Adam and Eve that they don't share with anybody else. This relationship that is preeminent over every other earthly relationship. He gives them one to the other. And this relationship is so special that the two people become one flesh. It's a crazy thing to think about. Two people become one flesh. Now, he's obviously talking about sexual uh, intimacy between husband and wife, but it's more than that. No, they have everything in common. What was two is now one. They have a common home. They have a common bed. They have a common bank account. They have a common family. They have a common destiny. That these two separate people are now overlapping their lives together in every possible way. And Adam did not create this. Eve did not create it. Society did not, did not create it to create some civilization. God created it. God creates marriage. God takes his first daughter, Eve, and he walks her down the aisle and presents her to Adam. It's the very first wedding ceremony. God creates it. And these two people become one flesh. Now, if that wasn't profound enough, if that wasn't profound enough, we're told that marriage was never simply about a man and a woman getting married. It was never simply about a man and a woman getting married. Paul says that the mystery of the first marriage covenant in Genesis 2, the mystery is it was always about Christ and the church. That very first marriage was always about Christ and the church. That word mystery there, in the New Testament, every time the word mystery is used, it does not mean something unknowable. It means something that was previously hidden Previously, we didn't know what it meant, and now God is revealing to us all that was going on that we didn't know about. See, marriage had always been about Christ and the church. He's just now letting us know about it. He's just now letting us know about it. And when Jesus teaches on marriage, when Jesus Christ himself teaches on marriage, he references, oddly enough, the exact same verse in Genesis. The exact same verse that Paul references, Jesus references in Matthew 19, and what Jesus does He says they become one flesh, and what he emphasizes is the unbreakable nature of the marriage covenant. Matthew 19, don't turn there, I'll read it real quickly. He, Jesus, answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, close the same verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. And look what Jesus does. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What's interesting in that text is that God created the original marriage and he continues to create every marriage. He says, what God has joined together, so every marriage still is being created and founded by God himself. So Jesus just said, and he points to, Jesus says, 
nothing should separate husband and wife. Nothing. He says, no man should separate it. Only death should part them. That's what Jesus is saying. And the reason Jesus takes Genesis 2.24, they become one flesh, and he emphasizes the unbreakable nature of the marriage covenant is, he's pointing to something infinitely bigger, infinitely stronger in the marriage covenant between Jesus and his church. Marriage is pointing us to the forever relationship between Jesus and his people. But the first marriage... The first marriage between Adam and Eve, instead of displaying this forever amazing covenant-keeping relationship forever, they're supposed to display. Instead, it becomes a place where everything is ruined. You know the story, hopefully, Adam and Eve don't trust God. They're given everything, and the one prohibition they have, they take. You've been there. God's like, you can have everything but this thing. You're like, that's funny. I find myself wanting that one thing all of a sudden. It's weird how that works. Take the one thing God says no to and take it. See, God's invisible. They want something they can see, something they can touch and feel. They want something that they think is going to be everything God promises to be, and yet they are let down immensely. They couldn't be further from the truth. And what's fascinating in the Genesis account, as soon as sin enters into the world, the first thing corrupted is marriage. Like the very first thing of all the things that could be corrupted marriage is the first to go. It's the first to go. See, Adam, when he first saw Eve, God makes Eve, he's looking at zebras and donkeys, he's like, this ain't going to work. This ain't going to work. I need somebody else for a variety of reasons. And then God makes Eve, he brings his daughter to Eve, and he starts doing what any man does, he starts quoting poetry. So this is that last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's quoting poetry at the splendor of Eve in the garden. And then what happens in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, they sin. God shows up and says, hey, guys, what what happened? Obviously, he knows. He's like any good parent. He knows what happened. He wants to talk to them about it. What happened? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit. I had no other choice but to eat. He goes from quoting poetry to blame shifting and throwing her under the bus in front of God. That's what happens. Marriage is the first thing to go. Now again, this earthly relationship of marriage is just a shadow of something. And so what happens, this first relationship is broken and severed and distorted. And what is that showing us? It's showing us a shadow of something bigger, that in that moment, we lost God. In that moment, our relationship with him was severed. That's why everyone now is running to fill themselves with so many different things because they're made for God and yet nothing else is working. And that's what we begin to do. Now this relationship with God is broken, but instead of like the first marriage covenant that broke between Adam and Eve, see, that was two-sided. That was two-sided. They both messed up. But with God, it's one-sided. He was nothing but good, nothing but kind, nothing but loving, nothing but faithful, yet we were selfish, we were sinful, we chose ourselves over him. See, God loved us, he saved us, and yet we went running after other lovers. See, God had this covenant relationship with us, and yet we went running after other lovers. I use that term on purpose, other lovers. Because when you read the Old Testament, God will describe the sin of his people as his people cheating on him. He'll describe it as his people whoring themselves out. 
He'll talk about them as saying, you're going to other things and other gods and anything else. You're giving yourself away in all the ways you're supposed to give yourself away to me. God calls our sin. It's not just breaking a rule. Sin is not just simply breaking a rule. You are betraying and trampling on God himself. You're not just breaking a rule, you're breaking God's heart. You're causing him to see you as someone who's cheating on him. You're supposed to be for him, and now you're giving yourself away to every other person. This is, I've been thinking about this all week, and it's, it's been messing me up. Every moment of your sin, every moment of my sin, God feels it. He feels all the visceral emotions that you would feel if you saw your spouse cheating on you. All the visceral emotions you would feel if you saw that, that's how God feels your sin. That's how he feels my sin. This is how he describes it. He sends prophets, and I want you to listen to how they talk about the sin of Israel. Jeremiah 3, 6. Just two verses, but it's all over the Old Testament. Jeremiah 3, 6. The Lord said to me, in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? Ezekiel 16, 15 through 17. says, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. And your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines. And on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself images of men. And with them played the whore. See, the prophets are describing your sin, the people of Israel's sin in such graphic terms. You want to know why? Because their sin didn't feel vile to them. It felt normal. It felt like one of the common things that we do. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's not that bad. And yet Jeremiah goes to the people of Israel and says, no, you are whoring yourselves out. And what's interesting is, don't think like these crazy sensual acts of the people of Israel. They're doing pretty common things. Like, they're worshiping other gods. Like what, the way we would talk about that, we're trying to be open and inclusive. We're just trying to be mindful and respectful and know there's different ways to worship God. Even if he says it's not true, even if it's not in his word, it's okay. We're being open-minded. God sees it as the ultimate betrayal. See, what they saw as this, it's, just, it's just material blessing God's given to us that we're made to enjoy. He gave it to us. So we get to enjoy it, Right? We can spend it however we want. As long as we're having fun, as long as we're happy, God sees it as them giving themselves away in every way he wants them. See, what even fascinating in the Ezekiel 16 text, he goes on to talk about how they were whoring themselves out to Assyria and Egypt. See, Israel made political alliances with Egypt and Assyria. Why? They wanted protection. They wanted provision all the things God was supposed to do, what they saw as just a wise thing to do. Make sure to cover your bases, hedge your bets, God may not show up. God saw that as them in the bedroom of another. 
That's how God feels our sin. They had this covenant. This covenant with God. Made to be held up above every other relationship. And yet they were trampling all over it and all over God with it. Um, My wife, Lauren, and I have just celebrated recently our six-year anniversary. We've been together for almost ten and so for anyone who's been together that long with somebody, uh, you, we have, we've had our ups and downs. But I was thinking about this week, there's been one moment in particular where Lauren has just devastated me. Just devastated me. Once in like 10 years. So that shows how nice she is and how I have a hard time getting my feelings hurt. Like it's, it's <laughs> once in 10 years, there's one time in particular where she just devastated me. And so it was during, we've been together I think for a little over a year. And I was in a tough season. I was just... Long story short, I was lazy in every area of my life. Like spiritually, I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't in a community. I wasn't sharing the gospel with anybody. I didn't know Jesus. I mean, I wasn't giving my money away. I wasn't part of a church. I mean, I was doing whatever I wanted, and I was miserable because of it. And then on top of that, that laziness kind of permeated through my entire life. And so I gained like 20 LBs. So I was looking like Job of the Hut, Not good. It was just a rough season. So my beautiful wife, Lauren is dating me, and she's like, what can I do with this dude? Like, I don't know what else to say to him. Like, she's like, encourage me, suggesting, like, hey, you want to go run? No, Whataburger. Like, whatever. Like, <laughs> like, it was that sort of season. Like, honey chicken biscuits nonstop. Like, that sort of season, okay? And so she's suggesting things, encouraging me in ways, but after a while, she had a loss. She's like, I don't know what else to do. I'm a pretty stubborn person. And so she's like, I don't know what else to do. And so then she sat me down, and she said something that just destroyed me. Okay? I was talking to her about this. She was like, I really don't like this story very much. I'm like, can I please share it? It'll be good. <laughs> she, she sits me down. She looks me in the eyes. And I'm, I mean, obviously, I feel insecure. I have all sorts of issues going on in my life. And she looks at me and she says, Tyler, I'm really struggling to be attracted to you. <laughs> like, I just started weeping. Like, gross, like, please leave the room tears. Like, I was devastated. I, I have never been that devastated in my life. Now, she was right, but I was devastated. I had never had anyone hurt me that way. N- not anyone since either. Because obviously my wife has a special place in my life, so she can hurt me in ways that no one else can. Like if you told me that, I'd be like, I don't care. Like, I don't care. But if my wife tells me that, that hurts. It hurts. And you've all been that moment, right? You've, you've had someone you love deeply hurt you deeply. Like you've had that moment where their actions or their words, like plunging a knife into the depths of who you are. And being hurt by someone's word, being hurt by Lauren telling me she's not attracted to me, was hurtful. But I have never experienced someone cheating on me. Some of you have. You've experienced someone cheat on you. Your spouse, cheat on you. Maybe you've done it. And that level of hurt, I know nothing about. It's a whole other level. I mean, I cannot imagine the way you would constantly think about the images of them and that other person. How you couldn't just turn it off. It's always on your mind every time you're with them. But it's a whole other level to see it happen. For them not just to cheat on you, but for you to see it, for you to see the betrayal firsthand, and it's a whole other level to have them cheat on you, you see it, and then you beg them to stop, and they refuse. 
I mean, even the most evil, hard-hearted person in this room, if you were caught cheating and they said stop, you would at least stop. But that's how God experiences your sin and my sin. He sees us cheating. He asks us to stop and we say no. That's how we feel that every time. Every time. Think about God. He has an infinite amount of emotions, infinite amount of energy. So like you and I, when we get hurt by somebody again and again and again and again, we kind of desensitize ourselves to it. Because we only have so much emotions we can dole out for any given pain, any given hurt. Not God. Every single time, it's fresh to him. Every single time, it's as if he's seeing it for the first time as the way he feels it. That is how God sees you in your sin and me in my sin. We are whoring ourselves out, giving ourselves to anything and everything other than him. Every moment you give yourself away to pride. Every moment you give yourself away to lust. Every moment you give yourself away to self-righteousness or greed or disbelief in his word. Every moment, though it may not feel like a big deal to you, God's telling his people, you're whoring yourselves out to me. That's how he experiences it every time. Now think about this. God would have been completely justified in leaving this faithless bride of his. Right? If there was anyone, anyone justified in leaving a faithless person, it was God. He had created us, loved us, saved us, provided for us, protected us, and yet what had we done? What had Israel done? Given ourselves away to anyone who was willing. Anyone who was willing. If there was ever a person who would be justified in punishing somebody for such egregious and constant infidelity, it would be God. Listen, if there was ever a marriage that should have been dissolved, it was the one between God and his people. If there ever was a marriage that should have been dissolved and divorced, it was God and his people. And yet, and yet it's in this scene, it's in this scene where God's going to pull us up to the mountaintop of his covenant, keeping love, and say, I want you to see what my love is like. I want you to see what my covenant is like. I want you to see that I'm going to do whatever it takes I'm going to lose whatever I have to for Jesus to have his bride with him in his glory forever. He pulls on the mountaintop of his covenant, keeping love, and says, look at how every other mountaintop of so-called love pales in comparison. He's going to show us this, and this is what he does. He calls a prophet named Hosea. He says, Hosea, hey, man, I have a word for you. Hosea's like, okay, man, I'm excited. I've heard about prophets. They get words. pretty excited. What's my word? I want you to go marry a whore. Go find Gomer. She's an adulteress. Awesome name. Go find her. <laughs> go find her. I want you to marry her. I want you to love her. I want you to have kids with her. Hosea 1-2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Hosea does it. He goes, he marries this woman, he loves her, they have children together, 
He names them these, these different names to show what God is doing. And yet what happens? She leaves him again. They have three kids together. She leaves him again. She's cheating on him with any man who's willing. She's not in love. She's not in fact infatuated. She's just anyone who's willing. And Hosea, I'm sure, is thinking, Lord, surely that's it, right? I'm done. The word's over, right? God says, no. You go get her again. You love her still. Hosea 3.1. And the Lord said to me, go again. Go again. Love a woman. Not just go be with her. Not just bring her back. You go love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. God's saying, Hosea, you go love her again. And he goes and he asks, actually, she's gotten to such a place in Hosea 3, she's actually in slavery. He goes, he buys her back to love her, not to shame her, doesn't say, go shame a woman. Go tell her how wrong she is. And he says, go love this woman. And he's saying, Hosea, you're doing this because I'm going to show my people this is what I'm doing. That Israel, that you, that I'm, that we're that whore that keeps going out after every other idol, every other lover. And yet God says, I'm going to win you back. No matter how much you run, I'm going to win you back. And he's going to do it in the most unimaginable way. See, God wasn't going to send someone else to do his work. He's going to come himself. And he wasn't going to come in almighty, transcendent power. He's going to come as a little baby. He wasn't going to come and drag you out of the spiritual adultery, kicking and screaming. He wasn't going to come and just excuse us and act like it's no big deal. He wasn't going to come to give you more practical steps on how you could get better as a person and finally love him. He wasn't going to come be here and wait for us to figure it out and come to him. He wasn't going to do any of those things. He could have. Those would have been good and even noble things. That's not what God had in mind. No, God sent Jesus, listen, to die the death of a spiritual adulterer while you were still cheating on God. While you were in the act, while you were in the bedroom of another lover, of an idol, going to someone else for everything God made you to find in him, In that moment of cheating, he says, that's when Jesus is going to die. This is what Romans 5 says. Listen to this incredible verse. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare even to die. But God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still cheating, while we were still committing adultery in the act of it, Christ died for us. We were in the process of breaking the covenant and Jesus was dying to make it new. You were trying your best to destroy the covenant, so was I, and that's when Jesus died. He says, I'm going to love this people no matter how much they run, no matter what they're doing. I'm going to die while they're doing it. This, this 
was the covenant love every marriage in this room and for history is designed to display. It's this sort of covenant-keeping love that God's love is so strong, so endless, that nothing, and he means nothing, is going to keep him from getting his people. I want, I want to ask you, is that, do you know this God? Like, really? Are you just kind of playing religious dress up here and you kind of come to services, and, but your heart has never really known how sweet it is to be loved by this Jesus who died for you while you were in sin. Because this marriage between Jesus and his people is what all of history is waiting on. Like all of history is waiting for the real wedding ceremony between Jesus and his people to finally take place. In that moment, every earthly marriage will cease because the real thing is here. The real marriage is here One day, when Jesus comes back, listen to Revelation 19. This is the end of history. Revelation 19, 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Listen to why they're rejoicing. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. History begins and it's going to end with marriage. History began in Genesis 2 with the wedding ceremony between Adam and Eve. And it's going to end with the eternal wedding ceremony between Jesus and his people forever. And marriage is supposed to last a lifetime with nothing strong enough to tear it apart. Why? Because the marriage between Jesus and his people will last God's lifetime, which is eternity, with no sin or accusation to tear it apart. That is what marriage is about. That story, that covenant, that love. It's always been about that. So every marriage in here, every marriage in here and that will be in here eventually is going to go through difficult and painful seasons. You have to know that. Some of you are in that. You're going to go through seasons where sin is committed either against you or by you, sin that you never thought you would do. Sin that you used to think about when other happened to other couples, you thought, that's never going to happen to us, and yet you're in it. When cancer is diagnosed, and sickness changes your spouse to where they're not the same person you used to know. When finances are extremely low and you can't find jobs. When the loss is overwhelming, when your affections run dry, when all of a sudden that happiness you used to know is not there anymore. Every marriage will go through these seasons. If you're like a newlywed, you're like, not us, baby. You don't know our love. (laughs) Just wait. (laughs) If they're not that impressive, you're going to find out. Every marriage will go through those seasons. And it's in those times when you truly get to display the unbreakable nature of God's love for us. Like in the good times, 
Like, it's easy. When you're clicking and everything's great, you, lo- you actually like each other. They're still funny to you. Like, when all those things are, it's easy to display the marriage covenant. It's when things get difficult when you truly get to display what the marriage covenant between Christ and his church is like. Because guess what? That was a rocky marriage. And Jesus said, I'm going to make sure that you and I are never separated. See, it's in the fiery trials of life where marriages grow the strongest. It's in the fiery trials of life where marriages grow the strongest, where roots go down deep. And it's in the fiery trials of life where the gospel of Jesus Christ is displayed the clearest. The clearest. People see a marriage going through difficult times, but both parties are saying, I'm not going anywhere. Because God never left me. I'm not leaving you. That is when the covenant shows how strong it is. It's in those times when the gospel of Jesus Christ is displayed the clearest. Now, as compelling as I hope the gospel of Jesus Christ is to you in your understanding of marriage, a practice of marriage that does not change the fact that many of us have gotten divorced. It does not change the fact that, sadly, there are many of us whose marriage covenants have not mimicked and displayed the eternal marriage covenant of Christ and the church. And can I just tell you, there are a few things, and you know it better than I do. I've just seen it. I haven't gone through it. There are a few things as gut-wrenching, as heartbreaking, and as messy as a divorce. There are a th- few things as sad, because what are you doing? You're taking one flesh, and you're trying to tear it apart. So it hurts, and it's messy, and it's painful, and this is, my, this is an issue that myself, the other elders and pastors of this church, we have walked many people through. Divorce, remarriage, all these things. We've walked many people through this. And so what I want to do, I want to read to you an excerpt from a document that we just recently wrote as an elder team for our church to say, hey, I want you guys to know where we're coming from. This has taken a lot of time, a lot of years. I won't be able to go through the entire document, but at the end of the service, we're going to tell you where you can get the paper. I'd love for you to read it. But I'm going to give you a small excerpt in, in particular about where we stand on divorce. There's a lot, I mean, it's a long paper, but I want to read you the summary statement of where the elders of the Austin Stone stand on, di- on divorce. It's obviously not exhaustive, but this position was not reached easily. You have to know that. This has been many years of study, many years of hard conversations between elders. How do we actually do this? Many sleepless nights, many tears we've shed talking to people about this. Many years of prayer. So I want to read to you. It'll be on the screen behind me. I want to read to you this. It's a little long, but I want, you, I want you to know where we're coming from. Here's the summary of our stance on divorce. God hates divorce because it communicates that his covenant with his people can be broken. Therefore, divorce is never commanded or given permission in the scriptures. However, however, because God is mindful of our inability to perfectly obey him at all times, and mindful of the extent to which our hearts can become hardened by sin, he gave concessions. Not permission, he gave concessions, not permission. Regarding divorce, in two cases, in the case where sexual immorality, that's one, or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse is involved. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, and it will not be treated as such at the Austin Stone. There can be healing and forgiveness and even a future marriage 
that glorifies God can be had. However, a marriage covenant that communicates the unbreakable nature of God's covenant with us is always the highest aim. Therefore, we will always counsel reconciliation between couples contemplating divorce or having already divorced, except in the case where remarriage has already taken place. The concession of divorce should not be considered until reconciliation has been exhaustively pursued. I wanted to read you that so you know where we're coming from. And that may have raised more questions than answers, but I hope that prompts you to actually read the paper to read where we're coming from, and to talk to an elder, talk to a pastor. I'm sure some of them are here today. They'll be at the front. We'll have to talk to you about this. We want, we want you to, don't the size of this place tell you that we don't want to get to know you, that your pastors aren't around. We want to talk to you and process through this with you. You have to trust me when I say our elders know how difficult that can be for some of you. Like what I just read, we, we know. We have sat in many living rooms over many cups of coffee and had to teach these things, we know. This is not glib, it's not flippant. But can I tell you, the elders of the Austin Stone, our chief responsibility is to ensure that we as a people have sound doctrine and teach the word of God. That's why God gives elders to a church. Not to be CEOs, but to be spiritual fathers who say, here's what the word of God says, that's what we're doing. The best of our ability, teaching you the word of God. And here's what we've seen. Time and time again, we have seen God show up in ways and change hearts of people in ways we never thought possible and in timelines we never thought possible. God has proved faithful every time to his word, even when it's hard. And that's why we want to teach it to you again and again. Let me close with this. I love the way, I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones, she describes God's covenant-keeping love in her book, Jesus Storybook Bible. It's good for kids, but even for adults, you're like, this is really good. It's all kind of on my level. Um, Kind of get this. I love the way she calls and describes God's covenant-keeping love. Here's what she calls it. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. His never stopping, never giving up, always unbreakable and forever love. Every interaction, every decision, every motivation in marriage must be dictated by that love for you. Not by your so-called rights, not by your experiences, not by your feelings, not by popular opinion. We have to look to God if we're going to have these unbreakable marriages. We have to go back to his epic love for you, this story of redemption. To remember who you were. You were a whore away from God and he died for you in that moment to have you back. And you remember that and you go to God and say, Holy Spirit, give me strength to obey because I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Strength to forgive. Some of you are struggling to forgive your spouse. You need to remember the gospel for you and beg God to give you faith to forgive. Faith to love. Faith to serve. Faith to never leave. Why? Because God forgave you of much worse things. God served you in much more humiliating ways. God loved you in much more costly ways. And God never left, nor will he ever leave you. The last thing Jesus says before he goes to heaven is, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. This covenant's unbreakable. 
That's how God treats you. So we treat one another that way. Spouses, you need to fight for this. And church, we need to collectively fight for this. Every single one of you is in this fight. Why? Pictures of the gospel are at stake. Your friend who's married, it's not just a relational conflict. A picture of the gospel is at stake. That's why we fight. So if you're in here and you're not married, this church, these marriages need your prayer. They need your encouragement. They need your instruction with the word of God. And if they start talking about divorce, you tell them, no way. You remind them of the gospel. No way. How could you? No way. Look at what he's done for you. Look at his love for you. No way. You don't be the person who says, it's a pretty good point. If I was you, I wouldn't go put up with that. We cannot be the group of people. It's a community effort. We have to fight for unbreakable marriages so we can have pictures for this city of the unbreakable love of God so that people in this city look at your marriage and go, how in the world are y'all still married? (laughs) If I was you, I would have rolled a long time ago. And you can look at him and say, I don't think you know what God's like. I don't think you've known what God's like with me. Let me tell you, because all I'm doing is mimicking. All I'm doing is displaying a little picture of God's unbreakable love for me and hope for me in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are a people who so often don't believe the most amazing reality in the entire universe. That you, a holy, transcendent, almighty God, though we wronged you in every possible way, though we disrespected you and belittled you and left you and cheated on you, God, you still came out after us. And you didn't provide for us ways to get back to you. You didn't just provide for us models or examples of how to get back to you. But Jesus, you made the way back for us. You paved the way back for us. You carried us back to God the Father. So we could know, so we could know the love of God. And then you gave us this gift of marriage. And God, you called us to display your unbreakable, your undefeatable love for us in our marriages. God, we want to thank you for the marriages in here who are in good seasons. The marriages in here who enjoy each other and love each other and the idea of separating is the craziest thing in the world. God, thank you for that grace. Remind us not to get arrogant about that. That's grace, that's mercy, that's your love, that's your kindness. And God, for those of us in this room who leaving our spouse doesn't sound so crazy, for those of us in this room who've tried to forgive again and again, and yet we don't think we can do it one more time, God, would you remind them in this moment, before they think about their spouse, that when we sing and we think about who you are, that we were reminded how you have loved us. They wouldn't do it because they deserve it. We do it because we've seen how much you loved us and we didn't deserve it. That we'd see ourselves as Gomer in that story and you as Hosea going again to love us. That while we were still in our sin, you died 
for us. God, there is not one person in this room who can respond properly or appropriately to your love without your grace. So God, give me faith, give us faith to be in awe of Jesus, to be in awe of his love so that when we hear his command and we hear his call to whatever path of obedience, we say yes and amen. He has proved faithful, he has proved satisfying, and he has proved trustworthy again and again. Jesus, do that and this people, do it in me for the sake of your name in this city. It's Christ's name we pray, amen.